Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Ancient Office Hours by the Ozymandias Project. Trireme Transit is now boarding for all new and returning passengers. Now departing present ponderings. Next stop is Ancient Office Hours at a library lost in the sands of time. Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 64 of Ancient Office Hours. This week, my guest is Dr. Christopher Salenza, who is currently the Dean of the Krieger School of Arts and Sciences and a professor of classics and history at Johns Hopkins University. He served as the 21st director of the American Academy in Rome and holds two doctoral degrees, a PhD in history from Duke University and a doctor of philosophy in classics and neo-Latin literature from the University of Hamburg. He has authored or edited 11 books and over 40 scholarly articles in the fields of Italian Renaissance history, post-classical Latin literature and philosophy, and the history of classical scholarship. In this episode, we discussed how he got to conduct research in the Vatican Library, how to successfully cross and mix disciplinary boundaries, how he survived two PhD programs at the same time, and broke down what Renaissance studies are beyond the Medicis. I hope you enjoy this episode, and if you like what you hear, please give us a five-star rating and review us on Apple or Spotify. You can also subscribe to our Patreon, as this will allow us to reach more people and make more exciting ancient world content. Enjoy. Thank you so, so much for joining me on this busy day. Um, I want to start us off and get the ball rolling with what I hope will be a very easy question, which is, how did you get into classics and ancient history? Because I know it's a very niche subject, so I'm very interested to hear how people fall into it. Yeah, it was kind of, it was almost a surprise for me in the sense that I, I went to college, believe it or not, thinking that I was going to be a wrestling coach. Um, because I loved the sport and so on. And so I went to a school, the State University of New York at Albany, that although it was a Division three school, it had um, the Olympic Greco-Roman coach there, and he ran a private club. And so I went there, and I, I, I did that and so on. But as I was doing that, I was taking classes, obviously, and I took this one class from a professor named John Monfasani, which was on the Italian Renaissance. And he started telling stories about the Vatican Library and about manuscripts, you know, handwritten texts from the past. And it intrigued me. And eventually, I, I sort of fell in love with that field. And I, I, I wound up, you know, taking all of that crazy athlete energy and putting it into doing all the things that I needed to do if I wanted to study the Renaissance in the way that he had advised, which was really very heavily indebted to classics and the classical tradition. So I had to take intensive Latin and intensive Greek. I wound up minoring in Latin. 
Um, and that was really the journey that I had. And then the second big step was just going to two different types of graduate programs. I wound up doing two PhDs. One was in history at Duke University, where I studied with Ronald Witt, and he was a, a scholar of the Italian Renaissance, but again, somebody very heavily Latinate in his work. And then I went to Germany, and they had this funded program, and it was basically what was called then a graduate college where universities got together and they put their interdisciplinary strengths together and they funded you if you were a PhD student. And this one was on the history of the transmission of classical texts through, you know, the late ancient world, the middle ages um, and the Renaissance. And so that's what I did when I went there. And those were the two, those were the big ways. I would say that one kind of shock of finding an academic subject that you, you just fall in love with. And then the second, just, having contact with different forms of classics and classical scholarship. That's so cool. I, I mean, when I went to high school, uh, I chose the high school I did because they had a Latin program. And then when I arrived the next year for my first year, they promptly announced that they were ending the Latin program. So, so yeah, it was some bad, bad luck, but um, yeah. So when, when you went to undergrad though, um, like, even though you had discovered this passion, you know, was there any hesitation about doing this as like a full-time job? Were you kind of like, oh, I don't know if it's very profitable, like maybe I should do something as a backup? Or were you like, no, I know exactly I want to do this? I, I think I, I fell so in love with it that I, I was pretty sure that I wanted to to try at least try, right? And so the first step, I had no idea, of course, at that time that I would wind up doing two PhDs. But, you know, I, I had this this advisor who who you know, really was a very good advisor, John Mampasati at that, at that stage. And he explained to me how things worked, you know, that if you got into a graduate program, they would fund you, right? Because I couldn't have afforded to go without the funding and so on. And actually the first year I applied, I didn't get into any with funding. And so I stayed for another year at Albany and I did a master's degree. And it was during that year that I, I, I did a thesis on, um, a 15th century Italian thinker and this one Latin manuscript that he had. I worked with Mumpsani. And so then the next year when I applied to doctoral programs, I wound up getting in and getting funded by two of the ones that I applied to. And so that, that made me feel okay about the finances and so on. Had, had that, I had that, that second year, had I not gotten in with funding, then I don't know what would have happened. Then I might, might've had to reevaluate. So, um, but yeah, that, that's the way it was. Yeah. So I'm a bit curious how you went about choosing your specialty within grad school, both at the master's and then the PhD level, because as someone who kind of dealt with these questions as well, um, I know a lot of people try to give you a lot of differing very confusing at times advice because some people say, oh, you have to paint with a very broad brush stroke, but also it has to be sort of precise. And then it gets different when you get to the PhD level. So, I mean, you had this interest in Latin, you had this interest in the Italian Renaissance. So like, how did you figure out how to like put that into a workable game plan and go and achieve that? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And I would say, I do think this is something different for everybody who does this. For me, it was very tied to the mentors that I had. Um, at the beginning, and, and I'll explain what I mean by that. So, so that first mentor, John Mampasani, he was, he is still somebody who's heavily into this world of, you know, especially Latin, but also Greek manuscripts, mostly from the 15th century that have been either very little studied or unstudied at all, right? So he's one of these people who edits things and translates them and writes about them and so on. And so he, you know, like anybody who's done that, that kind of work for a while has, a whole stack of projects that could be done. And so I remember for my master's thesis with him, that's how it worked. He just said, well, why don't you take a look at this? And he showed me it was back in the days when we didn't have 
the internet. So we had a microfilm of it. And I remember having to go into the basement of the library and put the microfilm on and so on. And that got me going on that front. And then when I got to my graduate program at Duke, my mentor there, Ron Witt, was in some ways the, the opposite when it came to guidance in the sense that he was very hands-off um, but was always there for you when you needed him. In, in other words, whenever I needed him, he would be there, but he, he really urged you to kind of explore on your own. And so for me, the big, the big transformation happened, I think. I got there in 1989, and then in 1992, I was lucky enough to win a Fulbright Award to go to Italy. And I didn't know it then, but I, I wound up staying in Europe for four years. And that was my real introduction to the world of manuscripts. And that, that's really all I did in the first two years when I was in Italy. That's every day, all I did anywhere I was, whether it was Florence for the first year or Rome for the second year. Um, I, I basically went to libraries like the Laudenziana in Florence, the Laurentian Library. Um, I went to the National Library in Florence. And then when I, I moved to Rome the next year at the American Academy of Rome, I just spent every day at the Vatican Library. I and mean, that's what I would do just calling up manuscripts from the 15th century. And out of those, I went there expecting to do one project. And out of those, I wound up finding one that I thought was really interesting. It was a, a text that had never been fully critically edited by um, a 15th century humanist named Lapo da Castiglionchio. It was a treatise called De Curiae Commodis on the advantages of the papal court. And it was a dialogue, and it was interesting. And because the more you read it, the more you realized as he was toting up all the advantages at the papal court, he was also criticizing it by listing them with such fullness. And so it seemed it really it really got to me in an interesting way because it opened up this whole world of what was going on in the first half of the 15th century. And yet it was a deeply philological project too. There weren't many manuscript witnesses. There were seven, and so it was doable to see them all and to kind of collate them and so on. And so, in fact, at the time, I, I, I thought there were only six. I only found out about the seventh one later. But it was able to do that work. There, there was one that was in Naples. Um, there was uh, one in Florence. There were uh, two at the Vatican. There was one in Paris. And there was one, I believe, in England. And so, you know, I went to all of these places and was able to, you know, scrape together the funds to make quick trips to the other ones while I was living in Rome. So anyway, the project really happened just by kind of, really being immersed in just pulling up, you know, at the Vatican at the time, you were allowed to pull five manuscripts per day. You, you know, you have to request them and they would give them to you. And it was just by reading intensely without necessarily a truly predefined goal. I mean, I had the larger project in mind, which was to try to understand um, how Renaissance thinkers understood pre-Socratic philosophy. That's where I started going, but then I just kept following my nose and I wound up stumbling on this project. So again, my Duke advisor, Ron Witt, being so hands-off, I wrote him about it. And again, this was back in the days of letters, right? So I literally wrote him a letter. And, you know, he, he was diligent and he wrote back and he said, sure, fine, do that if you're interested in it. So in a sense, it was it was that those different styles of mentorship. Um, but those years in Italy were absolutely invaluable because it, it's the only... It's just hard to train for that without doing it. The doing it is the training, if you know what I mean. And so that that that's what helped me. Yeah, I think that's fantastic. And hey, that's amazing. You have four years in Rome. I think a lot of people would dream about being able to go and study, especially in the Vatican Library. I mean, that's, you know, people just think of, oh, Vatican, okay, I visit the museum. Maybe I go around St. Peter's Basilica and then 
you know, leave. So yeah, for me, and it was kind of a taste actually, because my four years, it was really, it was one year in Florence, one year in Rome, and then two years in Germany, because that's when this other program came up. So, but yet I, as you say, though, Rome was important because I kept coming back, you know, and I, you know, you could go back and so on. And then, and then I later went back for the summers and I, um, and, and then later in 2010, I wound up directing the American Academy in Rome for four years. So Rome and the Vatican have been constant presences for me. Um, but those early years were just, um, again, there's just nothing like that experience of just every day. Because what happens also is, you, you know, you get used to handwriting, you know, from the 15th century where, um, as I always tell students now, if we're going to do this, you have to have that shock of feeling like, geez, I, I've studied Latin, but I have no idea what this thing says because it's in this unfamiliar handwriting, right? And so what you do is, you know, you pick out a letter that you can recognize, then you pick it out and something you see, oh, it's part of the small word, and then you learn it, and then you eventually get used to that. But that kind of practice was really, it was just essential for me. I think it was at the foundation of everything I've ever done probably after that without me knowing it at the time. I mean, it really is incredible. And I, I'm curious now because I think when I think about when I was going through school, when I was going through classics programs, um, you know, if I'd gone to my advisor at the time and said, you know, I'm really interested in Latin, but I also am really interested in, you know, going to the Vatican and seeing things. I, I don't know for sure. So I, I can't say a hundred percent, but I feel like they would have tried to push me out of the department and go to like the Italian studies department or, or into the medievalists. And so, um, you know, it's it's interesting how you managed to also to basically stay in classics at the time when the work you were looking at isn't normally associated with like traditional classics. True. No, very true. Well, and you're and you're right. It was true even then because I, in thinking about programs, I did wind up. It was in a history department that I got my PhD in in the U.S. and then in Germany it was effectively a classics department. It was what they called Greek and Latin philology, but that was basically classics. And then when I entered the profession, my first teaching job at Michigan State, it was actually in a history department. And so it was only later that I got sort of formal affiliations with classics, but I stayed close to classics wherever I was. So at Duke, I took as many classes, graduate classes in classics as I did in anything else. A uh, key member of my dissertation committee was the classicist Francis Newton, who was a, a great a paleography scholar. Um, and then the Germany experience was there. You know, if you, the question you asked, I think if you fast forward to now, it's really now about, because now I, I do actually have half of my profit. I mean, mostly I'm in the dean, I'm a dean, right? So I'm mostly in the dean's office, but half of my professorial appointment here at Johns Hopkins is in classics. And we actually have had a tradition here of being pretty friendly to post-classical classics, if you know what I mean. So we have in the department, Shane Butler, for example, who in addition to doing fundamental work on Cicero and other kind of, you know, topics chronologically within the normal ambient of classics, he's also written on Angelo Poliziano, the 15th century Renaissance philologist. Um, but I think it presents a sort of an existential question because when you think of the amount of texts that there are in Latin and in Greek that are out there from after the traditional chronological boundary lines of classics, they far outstrip the number from the classical period. So if you wind up having those skills in Latin and or in Greek, there's a lot of really interesting work you can do 
on things that are sometimes completely unknown and sometimes very, very little known. So in Greek, it would be the whole Byzantine thing, right? And then in Latin, it would be medieval Latin. It would be Neo-Latin. And frankly, I think with stark admiration of someone who's actually co-advising a dissertation here, although he's at Brown University, Andrew Laird, who works on Latin in the so-called New World, meaning that, you know, when Europeans, you know, wound up going to what they called New Spain, you know, often with these brutal colonizing missions, um, what you have is really this, this huge fund of Latin sources that you can research and think about, and you can think about all the kinds of topics that connect to contemporary academic interests, whether those are colonialism, whether those are issues of indigeneity, right? You know, and, and people just haven't done as much work on the Latin sources from that period as they might have done, let's say, on the Spanish sources or other languages that are present. So there, too, it's like this whole new frontier. So I think for moder- for classics now, it's worth the discipline thinking about how tightly bound does one want to be to those chronological boundaries. And I would even argue, thinking of somebody like the famous Peter Brown, you know, his work on late antiquity, where he, he just kind of in his career kept going eastward. Um, even the geographical boundaries, right? I mean, of course, you go to Rome, you see the Colosseum and everything, you love it. But there's also this sense that things were probably more plural and fungible and diverse and permeable in the ancient world than sometimes, I would say, 19th century nationalist traditions of scholarship and historiography um, uh, pointed to. So I think it's worth the discipline having that conversation. You know, what, who, what, what is classics? You know, what should classics be? Who is it for, especially? Because that's another big existential question, right? Who is classics for? Oh, I completely agree. I, I think these conversations are long overdue because I definitely know of uh, people who are still kind of on that edge and they don't feel like they fit in a category. So they're always trying to picked aside, which is so unfair. But I'm really interested because I think you're the first person I've really talked to who um, got two PhDs and went two different routes and did the whole Europe and US routes. And so just almost from like a time investment type of decision, um, after you got the one, you, you know, did you sit and say, okay, do I need a second one? What will the second one add to my career? Because um, I think a lot of people, when they finish one, they're so tired that, you know, taking on a second one is like, oh my gosh. So, you know, what went into the decision to go and press for the second one? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And I would say, I, I, again, it was it was the advantage of having very flexible and invested advisors. And so, the way I heard about the German PhD program was it was it was 1993, and I was a fellow of the American Academy in Rome. It was my second year in Italy. And my old advisor from my undergraduate years, John Lampassani, wrote me and just said, by the way, have you heard about this? You know, there's this German program where, you know, you can apply and they would fund you, and it might be a good idea, you know. And so then I wrote my, my, my then advisor, Ron Witt at Duke, and told him about it. And again, with his usual hands-off way, he said, sure, try it. So in effect, I was sort of doing two at the same time. You know, I was already ABD in the one, so I was in dissertation land for Duke. And then I went and just started this other one. They wound up having the coursework in Germany. And there, too, I had two really good advisors, Walter Ludwig, who was a neo-Latinist, who had actually taught at Columbia for a number of years before returning to Germany, and then Dieter Harfinger, who was a scholar of Aristotle and of the Greek manuscript tradition. And they also were all about the intellectual project, and they were less concerned about formality. So they didn't mind that I was doing two at one time. 
So they gave me my second year there a little bit of leave to go spend two, two or three months back in North Carolina, just finishing the dissertation and defending it, which I did. Then I went back to Germany. Um, and, and in that year, um, I, I wound up going on the job market and, you know, I applied for about 25 different things. I got one interview um, and luckily I got the one job and I'll never forget just how fortunate I was and how lucky I was because this was in the, the field of history. And at the time you used to do interviews at the American Historical Association. I couldn't afford to go from Germany there, but they, the German uh, folks at Hamburg actually authorized a ticket for me. They allowed me to go because they saw this would be important. So I went and again, got the interview. Uh, and then luckily mm. wound up getting invited on and, mm. and got the job. And I, I recognize every day how differently it could have gone. You know, if I had just made one, if I made a mistake in the interview, I don't at any rate, I think there's a lot of luck involved in this world. And I know I was very lucky. And so what that meant was since I got that job, I, I still hadn't completed the German dissertation. And I wanted to make sure I wrote a first book. So I spent the first couple of years at Michigan State turning my American PhD into a book, which I did. And at the time, and I was always still having the German project in the background. And I didn't wind up really finishing and defending it until um, I think it was 2001. So, so it took a while and it was like a second book project at the time. And it was quite an experience being, a, you know, a full fledged assistant professor who was going to be promoted to associate actually having to go back and defend my dissertation in Germany. <laughs> but I did it, you know, and in the end, I'm glad I did it. Had I known how long it would take, I'm not, I don't know, you know, because at the time it always felt like this albatross. I was like, oh God, I have to finish this thing. But having done it, I'm really glad I did. And there was really something, you know, of getting exposed to that European tradition, specifically the German kind of philological tradition out of which so much of our modern classical scholarship has come. And just the respect they had for the humanities there in the university system too. I mean, they really, in Germany especially, and in Europe in general, but Germany especially, they really fund the humanities. You know, they think of it as seriously as they think about other forms of scholarship. So that was pretty inspiring to be around that as well. And how did they let you get away with such a long time? Because I, I know now, I, and I, obviously it's very different back then, but when I was exploring possible PhDs in Europe, they said, you know, it's it's a, it's a very different from the US PhD where, you know, it's three, four years, it's short, and you go and you basically just write. So, you know, like, how did you manage that back then? Well, I mean, I got there in 1994 to Hamburg, um, and I did, you know, effectively, there was, there's less coursework, as you probably know, in those programs. So I did the coursework that was needed, um, but I actually had come with a project to do. That was the other thing. Part of the interview process was I, I was pitching a project, basically. So in my manuscript researches, I had found this other text by a student of Marsilio Ficino, the Platonist in the Renaissance, who died in 1499. One of his students was this person named Giovanni Nessi. And there was this manuscript that was, in effect, a Codex Unicus, the only version of this text that was there. And my proposal to the German folks was just, I would like to edit and translate this and turn it into a project. And so they accepted that. So I kind of knew what I was going into work on. And I wound up leaving after the two years in Germany, leaving Germany because I got this job at MSU. And so, you know, they didn't really care how long it took me to finish it. They, you know, I was allowed to continue to be a student. Once I'd gotten a job, that was good for them too, because it showed that one of their grad, their eventual graduates was part of a university system. So, 
you're right to say though that had I just stayed there, I would have had another year of funding. And what I would have done had I stayed there a third year was I just would have written it up. Like that would have been the project, right? So um so anyway, all these things like life interceded and, and people were flexible and so on, you know, within all of the existing rules. It wasn't like anything happened that wasn't in line with rules but it was unusual let's put it that way it's an unusual case yeah i i mean i enjoyed hearing about it just because i know i probably if i were to do a european phd it'd go very differently so i'm i'm very intrigued by how you were able to you know stretch it and and still complete it even though you were trying to do a job and about to be promoted so very inspiring though that you i i think a lot of people would have been like if it feels like an albatross you might as well just kind of you can say ah well i'll leave it and maybe i'll turn it into a book i was tempted i was tempted a lot of times i'll tell you that much but but in the end i I just stuck to my guns and, and did it so well it seems like it benefited you so i don't think you made the wrong decision so I'm a little curious, and I do want to pivot a bit. So with your work in more like Italian Renaissance era, which is, again, as we've now established, not traditionally associated with classics itself, um, I saw that your most recent book, I believe it was 2021, last year, last year, um, the Italian Renaissance and, and the origins of modern humanities. So because a lot of my work here with the podcast and, and the nonprofit is connecting the ancient and the modern. I'm wondering if you would talk a little about your book and, and how you've, you've managed to connect the, the origins of humanities with the Italian Renaissance, because I find that such an interesting subject. Oh, I'm happy to do that. And, and again, this is one of these things that started as one thing and turned into something else. So it's, it started actually as a book that I was hoping was going to be a very short book. And it was, it was going to be called 10 Ways of Thinking About Philology in the Italian Renaissance. And my hope at the time was to do 10 very short case studies of people like Lorenzo Valla, Leonardo Bruni, um, and others who did this kind of work in the Italian Renaissance, showing how they worked on one problem, right? Um, and that that would give insight into different sides of things. But as I did it, it just grew, and I started writing more. And... Really, the way the book turned out is it became a sort of study of certain key habits and tendencies in the Italian 15th century, especially of of two different thinkers, I would say. One, Lorenzo Valla, who died in 1457, and the other, Angelo Poliziano, who died in 1494. Both of them have been part of the traditional story of classical philology ever since people started talking about the history of classical philology. Um, They did things like, Valla did things like compare manuscripts to each other, right? To try to figure out what 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 kinds of, um, how are they related to each other and so on. He did things like compare um, the Latin translation of the New Testament, the Vulgate, to the original Greek and tried to show where they didn't match. Um, Poliziano did things like um, try to figure out uh, the manuscript traditions of texts. You know, how were manuscripts related to each other? Did they share common errors? Um, how were they bound together? You know, one of his famous cases, Poliziano, was a reordering of the letters of Cicero because he realized that one manuscript a few centuries before, they had been bound in a different order. The choirs of the book had been bound in the wrong order since other people had copied that manuscript. And so there was this discordance in, well, how are these letters ordered? And he figured that out. So in one way, they're both sort of sources of traditional histories of philology. Um, But I've always, I've studied them for quite a while now. And I've always realized there was more to them than that, number one. And number two, that all of those things that we pick out 
in what you might call an internalist history of philology, which is to say, how did it progress over time? I've always been interested in seeing those things, those moments in their original context as well. And in the original context, what you find is that they weren't really proposing theories first. They were just doing stuff, right? They were looking and following their nose and comparing manuscripts and so on. And only later would people call these philological rules, right, that you would follow, you know, that you, you look for common errors in manuscripts to try to see, you know, how you can eliminate any that were copied after the manuscripts and so on. Um, and so... From that, I realized that they were both, they both had different types of emotional investment in their philological work as well. And from there, from that 15th century, I wanted to try to trace just in episodic, not thorough ways, how some of those tendencies that they, I would argue, almost began, ramified, changed, and were manifested in later centuries. And so the book has some stopovers in the 16th century, then spends a fair amount of time in the 17th century. Uh, with Descartes, and then with um, a, a kind of counterposition of two different views of what happens when a lot of information comes at you at once. The one of Jean Mabillon's De Re Diplomatica, where he really arguably writes the first um, comprehensive work of paleography, where he kind of almost helps to create this ancillary discipline of paleography. You know, how do you date sources? How do you how do you decipher them? How do you locate them both chronologically and geographically? And then I counterpose that to someone who is almost a contemporary of his, this Jesuit French um, classicist named Jean Hardouin, who wound up believing that almost all of ancient literature was a forgery, um, except for Homer, Herodotus, parts of Virgil, uh, Cicero, Pliny, and one or two other things. He believed it was all a vast conspiracy of medieval monks in the 14th century who wanted to give themselves a backstory for all of the things they were working on. And it struck me that, you know, philology and the modern humanities, a lot of those sort of the genetics of the modern humanities are in all of those stories. So what happens, for example, when, um, you know, you have so much information that you feel a need to classify it, right? That's one strand that kind of comes out of Feliciano. Another strand is what happens when you think about whatever technology you have at hand to do the work you're doing, and you counterpose that to the goals of the work. So in the case, in the 17th century case, what you have is really a very mature printing with movable type. One of the reasons that Mabillon's work on paleography was so successful was that he was able not only to give a really good history of how scripts progressed over time, he was also able to show pictures. Um, and these are beautifully done. They they seem photographic, you know, centuries before photography. They seem photographic because he hired people to do engravings of these manuscripts that he had. And so one of the reasons that 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 happened, I think, was that the technology um helped propel that sense of the book as a vehicle of truth. And yet at the same time, really at the same time, this person Hardo N basically says, well, now that printing with movable type has gotten so good, he actually says this, we now have all these books and we can compare them. And I know that they're all a forgery. And once he felt like he knew that they were all a forgery, he used the skills he had to prove the conspiracy theory. So there too, I think, you know, it says, not directly, but it says, and I would say adumbrated ways, a lot about the moment we're in now with the humanities and with what to do with classics. Um, you know, are, are the humanities something that's really just about 
um, you know, listing sources and dispassionate and, you know, you know, scholarship that takes all emotion out of it, or, or the humanities about accessing our emotions and about helping us feel more human and so on. And all of these things really, I do think are mediated without us open, o- always knowing it through the technologies through which we experience reading and writing. So in a way, thanks for asking me. The book goes from this era of handwritten, right? Everything that Vala is doing is for the most part handwritten. He dies in 1457. So, you know, he doesn't ever work with the very fledgling printing press at the time to, you know, this, this later moment, a few centuries later, where the technology is very mature. And so it did make me think a little bit about where are we now and how are we reading now, especially that we're, I would argue, flooded by all of this information that's coming at us on screens and on, you know, tablets and phones and things like that. We weren't quite built for this, I don't think, to read this much all at once. And so I think it it helps to look at the past, not for solutions necessarily, but just to see how some of these episodes might have been foreshadowed. I mean, it it brings up some really, you know, interesting points. And as you were talking, I was just thinking, you know, if it was... I mean, I've lived long enough to see how the iPhone came in and now this this media technology age where we're just we are uh, flooded with with so much information. And I was just sitting here thinking, I wonder if people felt the same way when the printing press was invented. Like, did they feel overwhelmed that suddenly you just print all these papers and then, you know, you pass them out and you just go, oh, I'm presented with a stack of, you know, a hundred pages. Oh my goodness. There's a, there's a wonderful book by the historian Anne Blair called too much to know. And, and for her, this moment of information overload really comes to a head in the late 16th century. And that's really what her book is about is how, you know, you know, a century and a half ish into the history of printing with movable type, how do people a kind of experience information overload? And then what do they do about it? And she has all these interesting stories about, you know, sui generis reference systems that were developed and and reference books. And and in my book, the one that we were just talking about, I argue that there might even be roots of this tendency just a little bit earlier in the wake of Poliziano, because by Poliziano's era, um, almost all of the texts that we now have to study the classical world had been kind of rediscovered, you know, by the patient labor of his predecessors in the Italian humanist movement, you know, people who went to libraries in Switzerland and dug up manuscripts of texts like Lucretius and others that were either lost or were only known in fragmentary versions. By Poliziano's day, i.e. the late 15th century, almost everything that we have now, they had. Few little things, parts of Aristotle's poetics, other things come a little bit later, but for the most part, we had everything. And so the question starts to become, and I think you can almost feel this in Poliziano's occasional melancholy and the sorts of work that he does, and then certainly the works that his students do, which I talk about in the book, that now it's time for us to make sense of it all. Now it's time for us to create what seem like modern reference books and things like that. One example, his student, Pietro Crinito, um, wrote um, a book called De Poetis Latinis on Latin poets, which is really he really figured out the chronology of, you know, ancient poetry, all whether from the very earliest Latin poets through to the era of early Christianity. And it was a book that was so popular that it was reprinted uh, well until the 18th century and used as a standard source. And and what's amazing about it is he basically got it right. There's a few little things. He basically got the chronology right. It's a very, um, I would say just the fact style reference book, you know, on a surface, not that interesting, but as a whole, I think very interesting. You know, he gives where did the author come from, you know, uh, what were the major works, what were some hallmarks of the author's style? And they're very short kind of things. So, and this was part again, I think of making sense of what was even a century before the late 16th century starting to seem like just a lot of stuff 
and how do you deal with it? You know, but again, I would, I would cite Anne Blair's book as the key place to go to think about this. It's really, it's beautifully written. It's very well done. Yeah. I definitely want to check that out now. And as you were speaking, I just, it occurred to me, I, I didn't take, I didn't get to take any classes really on the Italian Renaissance. So I, I'm mostly unfamiliar. I mean, I've heard a lot of the names that, that you've uh, cited sort of pop up, but I'm very unfamiliar. And I'm going to just sort of guess that a lot of my listeners probably are unfamiliar as well with the period. So I did kind of want to ask then, um, when we think of the Italian Renaissance, it's a very sort of long, very um, undefined for some people period. And I think when you hear that, people might tend to just generalize and say, oh, you're talking about like the de Medici era, right? Like, are we talking about Cosimo de Medici? Are we talking about Lorenzo? And, and so, you know, like, what do you consider Italian Renaissance? And like, what does it mean to study the Italian Renaissance? Like, you know, who is actually important outside of the Medici family or the Sforza family? I mean, we, we tend to only hear about these famous families and, you know, that's all we got. No, that's a good point. Well, I'll tell you. So in 2004, I wrote a book called The Lost Italian Renaissance. And really, that was about shining a light on the very many uh, hitherto little known or even unknown sources of the Italian Renaissance in Latin. And so, you know, if you think about it, like we, we do tend to know names such as the ones you mentioned. We know names of artists, right? You know, we know the name Donatello or we know the name Botticelli, right? We know, you know, Leonardo, Michelangelo, Raphael. Um, but very little is normally known about a lot of the thinkers from that 15th century. And yet, right, as, as two great scholars discovered, Eugenio Garin in Italy and then Paul Oscar Christeller, who was a German Jewish refugee, spent five years in Italy in the 30s, then came to the United States, found out there were tons of manuscript resources attesting to the work of these 15th century thinkers. So I think for me, that's really what, what it's about when I talk about you know, the, the intellectual history of the Italian Renaissance and how it's connected to classics. It's really that, that extended moment. I would say there's about five or six generations from um, Petrarch, who died in 1374. He was somebody who later became known for his Italian poetry, which is absolutely beautiful and foundational to the Italian language. But alongside of that, he wrote as much more, frankly, in Latin that got a lot less of a hearing. And then I would argue there's a key, a key kind of ending point comes in the 1520s when there was this thinker named Bembo who wound up coming up with a way to have um, a high Italian. In other words, he recommended the kind of Tuscan that way back when in the 14th century, Petrarch had used in his poetry and Boccaccio had used in his prose as a new high Italian language that he hoped would have the same attributes of Latin, which were permanence and um, beauty, right? Because the criticism of the vernaculars had always been that they changed over time, you know, they changed by region. Somebody in Naples speaks differently from Florence. We need a language in Italy that will be permanent for works of literature. Bembo kind of cracks that nut in, in the 1520s, but he wouldn't have been able to do it had it not been for the patient study of the Latin language of the five generations of thinkers before them, who showed over time that, um, and this is a real discovery of the humanists, that the Latin language had changed even in antiquity, that it wasn't kind of an eternal monument 
right? That it was that it was something that was at one point a living language, right? And that it changed in antiquity that people like Cicero comment on it and so on. So I think in that sense, to me, that's one of the interesting things about the Italian Renaissance. Now, you can study it from different perspectives. You can study it from the perspective of political history, social history, and so on. But the thing that felt like was really interesting to me was just how current. Um, I mean, you even have Ninja Turtles named after Renaissance painters, right? You know, I mean, but nobody knew anything about the thinkers who are like literally right along, you know, kind of right there at that very time. So to me, I thought it was interesting to dive in. And and that's really been the story of my my life, really. My career is just, you know, doing that kind of work and, and seeing where it led. And then lately going a little bit beyond that chronology, you know, into later centuries. So. Yeah. Well, I'm so glad you, you brought up the... Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, all named after famous Italian like artists. But um, you know, so okay, so you you do have a lot of different lanes, a lot of interests. So I am curious on the media aspect. You know, do you tend to find yourself paying more attention to period pieces, sort of set more within the Italian Renaissance, or do you spend an equal amount of time also looking at things? in the time period you would consider sort of classics proper, you know, the, the Troys, the 300s, the whatevers. Oh, you mean when it comes to movies and things like that? That's interesting. I hadn't really ever thought about that. Um, I, I would probably say the things that are more familiar to me would be, media-wise, would be the things from the, the that reflect the classical period. You know, Gladiator, for example, things like that. Um, and it's always interesting to think through what's elided there and, and what's included, what what they maybe get right and what they maybe overemphasize and get wrong. Um, and, and I think the larger question with all of that stuff, whether it's media related to, you know, movies or books related to popularizing related to the ancient world or related to the Renaissance is how do you reach people? Right. Because the truth is most people are not scholars, but but there's a lot of educated people out there hungry for new and interesting knowledge. And so you have to find ways to, I think, culturally translate the scholarly work that we do in ways that are um, accessible to folks. And one way, as you say, like one way is through is through media depictions. It draws people in. It's almost like a gateway for folks to go in and then maybe they'll get interested in other things. I mean, I've I've often said. In fact, in our strategic planning here at Johns Hopkins for the next five years in the school that I lead, the School of Arts and Sciences, one of the big pillars is public voices, is just helping our faculty who are interested, and if no, people don't want to do it, they don't have to do it, but if they are, and a lot are, find ways to maybe take that prize-winning you know, work of history that is obviously for specialists, but then maybe again, do a podcast on it like we're doing now or write an op-ed on it, right? Um, and so I think that's going to be very important when we think about the humanities as well as, is how do we tell people in ways that are accessible uh, about the work that's being done? And again, you know, movies and things like that are just so much fun, right? It's a great way of just drawing people in. Yeah, I would say I didn't really find myself drawn to anything in the Renaissance era. But then I saw the Netflix series on the Medici family. And I thought it was a great gateway. I don't know how much of it is accurate or inaccurate. I don't know. Have you have you seen it? No, I confess I haven't. <laughs> to my shame. No, I have not. So. There's a lot of media. So if you miss one, it's totally fine. But because, yeah, so I mean, that was kind of my gateway. I'm sure. I mean, my initial reaction was, okay, well, all these people are too pretty, too well off. They... You know, I don't know if this is really reflective of the ancient world at all, but um, yeah, I mean, 
I, I feel like it led me to want to look up the real people and learn more. But also it brought up a lot of confusion because, you know, I think one series starts further back in, in history, starts with Cosimo de' Medici. And then there's like a character who's Lorenzo, who you learn later is Cosimo's brother. But I know a lot of people who also watched and thought, is this the Lorenzo, the Magnificent? And we, Yeah, no, that's his grandson. That's Cosimo's grandson. Yeah, the, the Lorenzo the Magnificent. No, it's true. I mean, I think, look, you know, one, one thing that I find interesting about all this is um, I think in some senses the ancient, the ancient Greco-Roman world and the world of the 15th century actually have more in common with each other than they do, than let's say the Renaissance world has with us now. For all the touting of the Renaissance as being the, you know, the beginning of modernity and so on. I mean, there are debates you can have about that, but I think the truth is they were still, even in the 15th century, living in a fundamentally pre-modern world in certain ways, right? So what do we mean by this? Well, one, one, think about, you know, first of all, you have to imagine a way, the internet, you have to imagine a way for long stretches of that time, printing with movable type, you have to imagine a way, kind of mass transit the way we have it now. Um you know, I mean, I just told you I was in Italy for the weekend, basically, you know, like since Wednesday. I mean, I came back. That's unthinkable, right? That level of travel, right? And so, um, and even I would argue theories of human rights that we probably, many of us in an unarticulated way support, which is to say the idea that you or I, just by virtue of being human beings, we have the right to certain things, right? To not have our property taken away, um, you know, to not be arbitrarily arrested, um, and so on, right? At, at least in certain parts of the world, we kind of tend to believe those things in an unarticulated way. If you were in the 15th century, I don't think you would have necessarily thought that. Um, I don't think you would have assumed that that was a norm. You know what I mean? I think, you know, kinship mattered a lot. Your neighborhood mattered a lot. Who your family was mattered a lot. Who your allies were mattered, mattered a lot. And so I think in that sense, there's probably more in common between the 15th century and the ancient world than we might imagine. Because again, there's a, there's still a world is still kind of local in a lot of ways. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I like it and I, and I would be very much inclined to agree. I think that they, even then with all the newer technology, let's say, um, I do think that, yeah, they, they, they would have been more closely uh yeah related to, to the to the ancients but at the same time I'm, I'm i'm curious now because i know there was at least one tv show portrayal and i'm i don't know if it's like a popular thing or if it was just this one that likes to um it, it was a series named da vinci's demons have you heard of it i have not though okay so i think it was like on stars or something and it was this really imaginative thing where it takes Leonardo da Vinci, the famous one, and he has this sort of um, futuristic three-dimensional thing where um, he's inventing all these new modern things. And so I, what I feel the show is doing is very much it's setting it in the Renaissance and then it's like, basically saying oh well this man was basically imagining like um airplanes and flights and spaceships and stuff and so we have this tendency to want to relate these smart people within this time period with the future you know why do we have this sort of fascination with sort of trying to shoot them forward rather than recognizing that no they probably really all their experience is really tied to the past not the other way 
And no, it's a great, great question. And I, and I guess it makes me think of a couple of things. The, the first is that I think it's been the blessing and the curse of the concept of the Renaissance since it was, you know, more or less invented in the 19th century by Jakob Burkhardt, mostly, who wrote a book called The Civilization of the Italian Renaissance, which really set the paradigm for arguing that this, what he said, his famous line was that these were the the firstborn sons of modern Europe, you know, in his sexist and anachronistic way, right? But basically the idea was this is where you see the birth of individualism. This is where you see the glimmerings of the birth of modern attitudes towards scholarship and things like that. And then I think, you know, as scholars always do, they, you know, they want to go deeper. And the more we discovered, right, the more we discovered that, geez, a lot of the conditions that they were in didn't really support that basic idea. And yet somehow that is still attached itself to the Renaissance, number one. And number two, it also led to kind of reactionary scholarship to try to show, well, he was absolutely wrong about everything. When the truth is, I mean, you know, when you have, as they did in the 15th century, a huge influx of all of these hitherto un or little, little or unknown resources from the ancient world, that's probably going to change you in a, in a culture that had developed a passion for the ancient world. Something happened, right? And so the question is figuring out what it was. But the second thing I would say about that about that interesting point that you raised regarding, you know, how, how do we look at the past is I think if you look at, in general, the history of, let's say, the history of art, you'll find that people have always tried in some ways to see themselves in the past. I mean, think about all of the many paintings you could see from the Italian Renaissance that are depicting things from either antiquity or ancient Christianity, but they have people dressed like Renaissance people in the paintings, right? And so I think it's almost inevitable that as we're doing things that are broadly speaking, you know, um, about the past, something of us in our present, whether we like it or not, is going to come through in the ways that we interpret it and the ways that those episodes are mediated to us. And, you know, for scholars, obviously, the key question is trying to understand that is trying to understand well what are my own assumptions right i think there is this myth of the assumptionless scholar i think that's a myth and and i think it's better and healthier if you interrogate yourself like what are your assumptions about about what you're doing when you're looking at the past and then try to you know be responsible to the sources and so on but then broader culturally you know as you're pointing out when it comes to media um, we do try to see ourselves in, in in a lot of the things we do i think it's almost inevitable um, I think it's inevitable when we read novels, right, that in some way or another, right, we identify with characters in the novel, right? We 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 are people, I think, you know, as human beings, we seek out examples, we seek out, um, you know, things to connect with in some ways. And I think it's just very hard to do art without having something of ourselves in that, whether it's as the interpreter, even as the maker of the art. Yeah, I mean, I think that just speaks to we're all human and it's a very human thing that it's it's very hard for humans to do or see things if we can't place ourselves within. So, um, yeah, on that level, definitely makes sense. So I kind of like to, I mean, I, I wish we could continue this, but um, we would be here forever. So I'm going to try to contain myself. But I kind of end the interview portion of the podcast with three questions. The first of which is when you were in school, and this can be either undergrad or your grad experiences, did you attend office hours? Yes, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, and, and I did. Um, at first, I didn't because I didn't kind of know what they were. And then when I had the advisor that I had in college, I would go to him with questions and he encouraged me to come. And then I realized you can do that. It's just very important. I would urge anybody, if anyone is in school now, um, especially in college, um, 
go to office hours, even if you don't necessarily know what the questions are. Most professors want to see students, um, but but we don't in the professoriate always do the best job of explaining that, explaining what office hours are. In fact, some of us have come to call them drop-in hours and not office hours to make them seem less alien. Yeah, that's a good way to do it. And from your experiences with these host of great advisors that you were lucky enough to have, do you have a favorite memory or conversation, something that's like stood out to you? Yes, it was when I was I, I think I, I mentioned earlier in my second round, the first round of applying to graduate schools, I didn't get it anywhere with funding. Second round, I got into two places, so I was visiting them both. So when I visited North Carolina and Duke University, my eventual advisor, Ron Witt himself, came to pick me up at the airport. Um, and then as we were uh, going back to his car, it had started to rain, and he immediately took off at a sprint and then was jumping over, you know, little railways and the railings and things like that. And I just remember that as being so characteristic of the person I would come to know that I didn't know at the point, but just thinking, wow, this guy's different. You know, like he's not like a typical professor. And as I later learned, you know, that was really a lot of who he was. You know, he had friends outside of academia. Um, you know, he, he had a life outside of his academic work, even as he was a great scholar. So, so he became a kind of a model. Oh, that's wonderful. I had a professor who didn't quite pick me up from the airport, but I remember I got really sick and I had like a migraine and she was so sweet. She offered to drive me home and I never forgot it. She was just the most wonderful lady. So I love hearing about other great uh, advisor experiences. Moments of connection. Exactly. Yeah, those moments of connection are so important. Exactly. Yeah. And the last question, I'm, and you you kind of covered a bit of it. So this is just an opportunity to add on if you would like to, but um yeah. So basically, if you had to give a short elevator pitch to students for why they should attend office hours, you know, what would you tell them? I'd say you'll you'll find you'll possibly find some of the most meaningful relationships in, in your life. Number one, and number two, you'll connect with people who are who become experts in something, and it's just so interesting. Even if it's a field, you know, you're sure you're not interested in, it is it is fascinating to connect with people who fell so in love with a subject or set of subjects that they became passionate about it. And it can help inspire you as a student, um, even if that's not the field you want to go into, just to, just to, just to think about, you know, I'll surely fall in love with certain things too, as time goes by. Um, and just hearing the stories of how people got there, right. Knowing that it wasn't always like a, a flash of light. It was a, it was more a process. You'll hear about what that process was like for people. So I, I would say there's tons more that I could say about that, but I would just say, take the leap and go. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. Um, as someone who basically lived in my professor's office hours. Yeah. I met so many great people. <laughs> great. So at the end of each podcast, I ask every guest if they would read Shelley's beautiful poem, Osmandius. And so after you've read it, if you could just, you know, we'd love to hear your thoughts on, you know, why do you think people still love this poem today? Is it as powerful as we think it is? And, you know, has it stood the test of time? Okay. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. So I'll read it. Um, I met a traveler from an ancient land who said two vast and trunkless, trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal these words appear, my name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains, round the decay of that colossal wreck, Boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Well, it is it is a beautiful poem, and I, and I think like a lot of um, truly wonderful art, it can speak to you across time and place. And a few things jump out at me, even from this cursory quick reading. The first is that um, I think we're fascinated by fragments and ruins from the past. Right, we always have been, even in antiquity. Right, you know, we have people commenting on on what the past was, and we have a sense that, you know, once there was something there, now it's very different. How do we understand that process? Um, and then I would say also, there's a little bit of something that I do believe comes up um, in culture a lot, which is something like the myth of a golden age or the idea that once there were people or beings that were all powerful that did great things how do we stand in relation to those beings and 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 it's a way i think we've always had as people to to measure what we're doing suggesting in other words that there's been maybe something far bigger far more powerful in the past um so those are the two things that strike me about this beautiful poem and and i'm very happy to have re-encountered it uh, in this conversation yeah i mean i couldn't agree more you hit on so many of its amazing themes that i definitely see and i mean i definitely tell people this is without a doubt my favorite poem of all time uh there's a lot of great poetry out there i know but to me this one stands ahead above the others because it's also to me it's a um it's memento mori right by shelley it's a political, it's like a 14-line political treatise crammed into just a little paragraph. 
um, where, you know, to me, it speaks of the ephemeral nature of political power and, you know, um, one man alone cannot solve everything or this idea of monumentality, you know, how do we get there? What does that truly mean um, in in terms of, you know, it, is monumentality something that's actually going to last forever? So um, when kind of considering the poem like this, um, the last question I'd like to ask every single guest is if you take a moment to consider our contemporary society right now, do we have a sort of modern Ozymandias in our culture where something we think is great, amazing, lasting, and, you know, will it actually last? Or will future humans in, I don't know, a couple hundred years look back and just say, well, that was insane, crazy. Look, it's gone now. That's a good question. I, I, if we could depersonalize it, I guess I would say it's something like the myth of technology as the great fixer of everything. Um, I, you know, I think we're human beings. Uh, I, I think the more that we as individual human beings can come to some level of comfort with ephemerality, with the idea that we're here today, we, we might not be here tomorrow, we certainly won't be here forever. Um, to me, I think that's what strike, sticks out at me. Um, I, I would love to see us, especially in the U.S., pay more attention to the things that are around us to the local, our local fellow citizens, um, our colleagues to see them as whole people, not just as avatars on the internet, you know, um, but, and, and to realize that we're complicated creatures. And so I think somehow there's this, as I meant, this myth of technology as if this is this, you know, permanent way we're going to have to be mediating and dealing with the world. And as much as I think it's brought us a lot of wonderful things, I also think it it has um, changed the way we pay attention to the world in, in ways that aren't always salutary. And I, I do think that's just going to be a coming project, I think, especially of young people, is to figure out how do, how do we learn to know each other again, um, realizing that we have this great technology, but also realizing that there's really no substitute for contact contact with other people. I couldn't agree more. Um, yeah, I think it's really important. And I, and I think it's... I mean, it's an interesting case study just, just to think about our society that way. And, um, you know, as, as we've been saying, you know, I think there's a lot to be done to sort of see the impact of technology on all of us in this, you know, information, disinformation age, whatever we want to call it these days. So, um, and okay, I kind of lied. So the last question I actually will ask is, where can people find you if they, A, want to email you about, you know, coming to Hopkins because they've heard something and, and want to study or, you know, want to find your books or just follow what other works you've got going? Oh, thank you for asking. I mean, it's pretty easy to find me. Um, I, I am on Twitter, which I do use as just a kind of platform for mostly boosting my, the work of my colleagues. But I also have my own little site at academia.edu and that, that lists everything. It's got my contact information and 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 my major books and things like that are there. So those would be the two places. Great. Well, we will make sure to try to link everything in the show notes so people can go there and find you and email you and uh, hopefully get in contact about your books or your other research, um, or hopefully people who are inspired and want to come to Hopkins and study. Um, so it's been so wonderful to have you on. I wish we had longer, but you know what? I will just have to find an excuse to bring you back on the show for some other reason, some other time. And um, yeah, it's it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure for me. I really appreciate being with you. And um, 
Thank you again. This was a, it was a great conversation. I appreciate it. Trireme Transit is now departing ancient office hours. Next stop is Present Ponderings. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.